0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Northwoods is one of these novels. It is so special and it is so weird and it is so wild and it's gorgeous. Every single sentence is gorgeous. And Daniel Mason was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020 for a collection of stories, A Registry of My Passage Upon the Earth. I first started, though, reading Daniel with The Piano Tuner, which he wrote when he was 26 and in medical school, high, writing a novel in medical school. And it was huge. At This was, what, 2002 it was published? Yeah? 2002, yeah. Okay. And it was huge. It was huge in hardcover. It was huge in paperback. We just, this book kept going and going and going. And then there was another novel after that, and then The Winter Soldier. So five books altogether now with The Northwoods, right?
1: I think so, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I have to say, I heard about Northwoods actually from an editor who had lost the auction. She said, by the way, you need to know about this book. And she was not wrong. And it's set in Western Massachusetts. And we're going to talk about what you did in this book. But I was shocked to learn that you grew up in Palo Alto, California. Mm -hmm. This is not your territory. So how did we end up in Western Massachusetts?
2: So during the pandemic, lots of people picked up and went somewhere else for a time. Um, We came and spent part of the time with family who live in upstate New York. Um, And then I began a story, you know, spent kind of long days walking around the woods there and uh, just started thinking about seeing all these old houses, seeing all these old farms and these walls and wondering about the people Mm -hmm. who had been here before. So that kind of kicked off the idea for this story. And then I had a sort of fellowship to take time off from work and we came out here for a year.
0: And when you say here, Western Massachusetts was here or was it upstate? Western Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. So you have dipped a toe in the place, but as someone who... I shouldn't say I was feral, but we were close. You know, it was a lot of running around in the woods Mm. and building things and getting into spots and whatnot. Mm -hmm. The way you captured the landscape Mm. around this house, because you build an entire novel around a piece of land and a house and all of the people who end up inhabiting it at some point or another, starting... Essentially, in the 1600s, right? Mm-hmm. And you bring us up to the present day, and it's a great idea. Mm. Everyone gets their turn,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it's a lot. You, I mean, this is 400 years of human history mm-hmm. in one place, mm-hmm. in one house. So you're walking around in the woods. You're out of your natural element at Stanford and teaching and everything else. So, are you mapping this out? Is this the kind of book you map out what happens in the plot, or are you starting with a voice because you have a cast here? <laughs>
2: <laughs> but thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's funny with any book I always try to think about how it actually began like what what was sort of the kernel that that started okay. it off. and you know this time I remember and it's such a simple thought it's like a funny that I hadn't kind mm-hmm. of thought about it this much before but you know seeing these old houses I guess growing up in California living in California right and most of the places I've lived in in California are younger than I am right and and there's a few there's on-campus housing um, at Stanford I suppose that you know, people lived there before me. I don't even know who lived there before me. It's not very romantic. You know, thinking all of a sudden, sort of seeing these homes have been around for such a long time, you know, at least in terms of sort of American history, wow. and thinking like there must have been you know, so many stories, um, thinking that people were born in these houses and fell in love with these houses, died in these houses, all that had happened, and how little I knew about the places I'd lived in, and, and how little you know, most people must know about the places that that they've lived in and how they're clues. When you start looking, you know, you find things in the ground, you find things in the walls, but there's this mystery. And that sort of, that kind of suggested stories. And I had just finished the collection of short stories. I love the short story as a form. Um, I was pretty intimidated by the idea of starting a novel again. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll write a short story, you know, a series of short stories set in this house. And the thing that will connect them will be a place and and, um, and so that was that was the genesis. I had some ideas of time periods that would be fun to think about along the way, but not how they would be connected. So that was really a surprise uh, that I think kind of made the writing of it much more fun.
0: And I have to say, the stories, and I do want to go back to the story collection for a second because that's 15 years of work. I mean, you didn't suddenly sit down and create all of the stories in the collection. Putting that title and the scope of that work next to Northwoods, right? Okay, and let's, we can go through all of the books. Uh You can see Uh the spine, pardon Uh me, you can see the spine Uh of all of the things that interest you. You take this history of a place and of us, right? Uh And the characters that you find that end up bringing us through these stories, I mean, the connection runs Pretty deeply. I mean, and you, this is what, 21 years into your writing career, Mm -hmm. five books in, and no matter where you, it could be 1914, Austria, it could be Burma in the 1800s. And yet, I can see exactly how we got to Northwoods in terms of Mm -hmm. where your your brain works. But you're not the only practicing doctor. I mean, I realize you teach, but you are a doctor. writing yeah. fiction on the side
1: yeah
0: and yeah abraham verghese mm-hmm. is in a similar situation khaled yeah. hosseini william carlos williams mm-hmm. i know i'm missing some oh check off yeah i think check off also Can't a yeah. so what's the connection though between medicine and writing fiction because none of you is a slouch mm. when it comes to putting words on the page
2: uh-huh um I think everyone's minds changed I would say over okay. time. That's been that's been kind of interesting. So I think that in the beginning um starting out in some ways you know there's this this sort of wonderful off quote line from Chekhov. I'm going to paraphrase it. Writing is yeah. his lawful wife and and medicine's his mistress and and he sort of escapes from one to the other and um <laughs> and I think it's writings that's the mistress and sort of humanity in his mind is the mistress. Um and I do remember beginning you know being sort of in medical school, being in the science, learning the science, um, and feeling like a lot of the kind of human story that was there was not there. And there was a, the, the, the opportunity to kind of think about it um, from from the things that one encounters for the first time as a medical student, sort of not prepared to encounter at the age of 23, 24, and wanting to write. And so of sort of the sense of this escape. Um, then as time went on, there you know, have been periods of times where I've been Sort of working full-time, working part-time, not working as a doctor at all,
3: just oh, writing.
2: Okay. And so it's sort of, it's kind of gone back and forth. Now I feel like i sort of settled into a kind of equilibrium with it where, I'll, you know, I work I work part of the year, I'm not a full-time doctor. You know, I tend to work in the hospital, so mm-hmm. I have periods a month where I can write and then I have periods a month where it's very busy in the hospital. And those feel like different worlds in some ways, but mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, one's very curious about people's internal worlds, that's a similarity across the two disciplines. There's um, I think an interest in sort of clues, material clues. Like a lot of times when a patient kind of can't tell you what's going on, you kind of look for the material world. That's especially very, I think, very important to me early on in my writing, kind of now. I guess maybe because I'm a psychiatrist, one pays attention to internal worlds, maybe right. a bit more. Um so there's a, so there's bit an interplay. That's that said, I I do find sometimes I, I um that you know medicine because it's explanatory, I sometimes feel kind of can get in the way of my fiction. Um, and then I have to take sort of a step back because, you know, yeah. I mean, as a doctor, you're trying to remove some of the mystery of trying to get at what's happening. Or is that something I very much want to keep in the fiction?
0: And I mean, they're both storytelling in a way, right? Because you're getting a human being's history mm-hmm. when you're, when you're working with them in a medical capacity, right? So you've got to ask all of the questions mm-hmm. and, hope that you're getting answers that are truthful or at least accurate so the idea that you've got to build sort of a persona right whether it's a persona of the situation i mean certainly your patient is your patient but you've got to put the context to a person's life and it seems like the overlap is pretty significant and not yeah. not in like a you're drawing from your patients' lives. I'm certainly not suggesting that, but just the innate curiosity behind what makes us make the decisions that we make, or because you've got some characters who make some really wild decisions. I'm thinking of a pair of twin sisters. Actually, I loved the way you sort of balance the tenor and the forward movement. Of the Mm. story with these people Mm. because I could not believe some of the people I met in this book. You know, you said you were surprising yourself as you sort of worked out the story. But were you working in a linear fashion? I mean, did you really start sort of early on or did you build the pieces that you knew you wanted to write about first and then sort of work your way backwards? Because this is a really cohesive, Mm. fun Hmm. book that also has some lyrics, it has some song lyrics, it has some poetry, it has got some illustrations, which I quite liked. I didn't know what to expect. Let's put it that Mm -hmm. way. I had a basic idea. I knew you had written a novel about 400 years in the history of a house and a piece of land. That's what I knew. And I sort of read it blind. And Mm -hmm. this was so much fun. Mm -hmm. It was so much fun to read and I just how did you structure this thing how did you get your hands around it so I got a fun thing to read
2: Uh, well I'm glad it came out that way I didn't know where it was going um and I think that in you you mentioned 15 years for the short story collection and those stories over a long time and then the novel before this winter soldier like was published in 2018 I began it in like 2003-2004
0: Oh, this I didn't. Oh, wow. Okay. Horrendous, really long
2: experience of rewriting and rewriting. Northwoods is very different, so I knew that I wanted to to begin at the beginning, and I had the idea of the first chapter that that there was going to be this Puritan, sort of this anti Scarlet Letter, this Puritan yep. couple that elopes, escapes from from the colony, and and runs off into the mountain and builds a house. And it's a very short chapter, but I love the idea like other things, like it was originally going to be something else, and it was going to originally be a lot bigger. But I loved sort just, of just, just like this idea of these kind of uh, sort of Adam and Eve like characters become this kind of like founding um, mm-hmm. the, the the founders of of the house.
0: And there's also a little bit. I mean, I had a couple of moments with the orchard and some other things where I was like, okay, yeah, it works. The yeah. metaphor works. It totally works. But I I was giggling a little bit as I was reading because I was like, yeah.
2: Okay. I know, right. no, I know, I know. Like the, I think, like the Edenic reference is like there were times I, you know, tell myself, okay, well, let's let's back off a little bit, right. or let's be careful. But at the same, at the same time, I and mean, it is this this you know story, which of course is such a deep part of us to to yeah. kind of you know to feel it, to feel it haunting the book, I can help.
0: Oh, I think it definitely does, and also you balance it like the characters balance it out. I mean, it's not. It was kind of a fun Easter egg when I thought about it in a way, mm-hmm. and it would just pop up in ways where I would just.
2: Okay. Yeah.
3: yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: you, do, you have a very wry sense of humor. You let your characters be who they're going to be. And some of the characters have a rough go of it. So please don't misunderstand me. It's nice to have those moments where you're like, okay, you know what? Yeah, I am actually laughing at you and not with you. I'm so uh-huh. sorry, but I am not laughing with you. Uh-huh. You have a fake medium pop up at one point. Uh-huh. I mean, you hit all of these sort of beats of Americana.
2: Mm. Like the fake medium, in particular, that cat, that that whole chapter is a kind of burlesque and it's just this kind of wild show. And, um, I remember actually even editing it, you know, at one point my editor said, maybe sh- should, you tone this down a bit? I kind of tone the raunchiness down, tone the wildness down. And so I did, I toned it down. And then we looked at it again and we said, now nah, let's maybe put, turn it back up again. Cause I, I you know, there's, there is that, there's that kind of vaudeville moment in our history where things are over the top. And, and I just also, I mean, you're, you're speaking of this, this, um, she's this fake medium um anastasia this is her stage name and she's come to this house to perform a kind of seance um where she learns that she's hearing uh you know without giving anything anything away something kind of naughty that's going on um you know and she herself is a person who's very much in the flesh and um you know kind of loves the the physical things in life so um, she was such fun to to write. She's living in the same place that sort of the Puritan forebears of the first people yes. <laughs> um, also live in. And you just see the expanse of the different kinds of people who have inhabited this country and inhabited these places.
0: Well, and also watching the change in the culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And you do some very clever. Like we learned something about the founder of this orchard, mm-hmm. Osgood. And he's fighting in a war. And when you figure out what his story is, and you do it sort of with a couple of lines here and a couple of lines there, you never sort of lay out Mm -hmm. what his action, but puzzling it out was -hmm. really satisfying. And having Mm -hmm. all of the pieces connect and the way the story folds back on itself Uh as we move forward is really satisfying. There were so many moments where I was like, oh, hello again. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Or, oh, I see who you are. Mm-hmm. And either you turned out to be kind of who I expected or, huh, no one saw this coming. Uh-huh. Except yeah. maybe you, obviously, because you're the one writing it. But it's a really interesting way to tell an epic story of us. At one point, you actually have a bug. Mm-hmm. The bull weevil that's eating chestnuts. Is it the chestnut? Yeah.
2: So yeah, there's it. the 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 beetle scene I think you're thinking of is a Dutch a beetle that carries Dutch elm disease. Into, oh, sorry. Into okay, so elm. Dutch elm. Yeah, but you're right that the chestnuts are another chapter. There's sort of two plague chapters, uh, right. tree plague chapters.
0: And I grew up in New England, and you know, I remember hearing stories mm-hmm. about what the forests were like or what. You know, sort of also legendarily where I grew up, the cod ran really hard in the harbor and mm-hmm. you could just walk out with a bucket and grab all the cod you wanted and all of the lobster you want. I mean, again, this sort of Edenic right. storyline, right, of resources that, of course, got overfished sort of almost immediately. But the idea that you can't separate these people or this house
1: mm-hmm.
0: from the landscape and that as time passes, people add to the house and it gets bigger mm-hmm. and a little weirder. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, you think of all the histories behind this and I mean, so there's the, there's the physical house, mm-hmm. right, has its own history. And there's this particular way, as you know, in New England of building a house where I'm sort of used to in California. I feel like people want a new house to kind of knock the house down and yes, build exactly. a new house or, you know, or it's a new house. Everything's new. Whereas here, you know, whether it's I and mean, I've read different things about this, you know, sort of like mm-hmm. the. It's the New England character that doesn't sort of throw anything away, preserves things. And so the idea is if you had a house that was there and you bought the house from the seventh, you know, mostly maybe 18th century and you want to expand it, you don't knock everything down. You you build another, you build an annex and you connect the two of them. And if you want to make it bigger, maybe you grab the barn and they had this whole way of moving parts of the house around. This is one of the chapters of the book talked about this, but what means of moving, you know, parts of the house, like literally cutting off parts of the house. Putting them on logs, rolling them, sticking them onto another part of the house, and so you develop these sprawling houses and you see them all over New England, um, where each part of the house represents a different time period, which really is just such a wonderful metaphor for like a book. Also, I mean, like literally, a new chapter, a new group of people who are living in a new part of the new part of the house. That was very compelling. That idea when I kind of recognize that I can actually can see when I look at these old buildings around me. It's not just one old building. This is this is actually. A story I can see at least three four stages in this house but then there's this other side you mentioned the the beetle where there's this sort of non-human side as well and that that was an idea that I I wanted to pursue pretty early on in the book you know the mm-hmm. sense of what you know how how much can I have the non-human be like a compelling part of the plot because because nature's always been setting for me um I love writing about nature but it's always been something that Um, a person is appreciating and yet all the kind of good stuff that one encounters in plot you know like the romance murder um and disaster tragedy and that all happens is happening constantly in in the natural world and so i was thinking a lot about that and so each and the house isn't continuously occupied there are times when somebody dies and somebody else comes in and at different stages in the book as you mentioned those are you know very importantly, um, as the American cover shows, is, is a panther, is a key inhabitant of in that house for a while. Um, there's a beetle I and mean, there's a fungus which knocks down the um, the chestnuts. You know, I kind of wanted to show that drama um, or explore. like, What's it like to explore the drama of the natural world, not just seen um, from, from human eyes?
0: It makes me think of Andrea Barrett's mm.
2: work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, certainly not that they're direct parallels, but the way she sits in the natural world and the way Mm -hmm. her characters really are not ever separate from it. And the the world itself is a character Mm -hmm. in its own right. I mean, I love the idea that you're putting context to people Mm -hmm. in a different way and Mm -hmm. to be so connected to this piece of property and even to be able to mark time as well. Like, so-and-so hit hard times, so they sold X amount of acres mm-hmm. to right. the state to make a state park.
1: Mm-hmm. And suddenly
0: they were only down to six acres. Yeah. Which, yeah. I yeah. mean, but it is a really interesting way to mark time or like the chimneys fallen down or right. you, ha- you pull in a character from New York. He's part of that sort of Jimmy Breslin Crime writer, and mm-hmm. I, I know Jimmy Breslin was much more a newspaper man than a crime writer, but it's that kind of outsized personality,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that New York newspaperman personality, right who gets wind of a story and comes up and he's reporting on it. And this is sort of the fifties, right? Late fifties, early sixties kind of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. He has he has a little bit of that style. Probably he's been writing for a while. And okay, I think so I have the sort of secret timeline of the book that that's not in the book, and I think he's, he's okay like around then. Yeah, maybe.
0: Okay. But, you know, he's decided he's figured something out. And we as readers actually have more of the story Mm -hmm. than he does, which I, there are a lot of touches like that throughout where it seems to me that you just trust us. You trust the reader to know where we are in time and space with you because you've grounded us Mm -hmm. in this piece of property. Yeah, It's really hard to do. So, I mean, mentally, you know exactly where you are at any given point in this house or on the on the land, right? Like you know as you're writing.
2: As I was going along, um, so you mentioned Charles Osgood, the man who who builds the orchard. He was kind of key for me because I'd started out with these very early stories. And then it was September and, and I'd arrived in New England and I was working on his story. And I realized like, of course I'm working on his story. Like as I drive down the road, there's apples like, you know, falling from the trees around me. Like of course this chapter is about apples like I can't write a winter chapter in September I can't write a spring chapter in September so originally I'd imagined that the book would be chronological um, but then at that point you know with, with Charles Augustine and his daughters come next as twins that you mentioned <laughs> I thought what happens if I try to write not just the 400 years but what happens if I write sort of through the season so because the first part was June and now each chapter will kind of you know be written in the season that they're yeah. written in so I didn't know where it was going. I just knew that like when December was going to come to an end, I'd have to begin my January chapters. When January came to an end, I'd have to begin my February chapters. And some of those, I, I had an idea like, well, April's going to have to be like the 1980s or so, um, and it's going to be springtime. And so it's going to have to be a spring chapter that takes place in a relatively modern setting. Um, so maybe it's going to be good for this guy um, who is a metal detectorist so I've kind of been thinking about for a while. <laughs> Come about to discover stuff, right? But I didn't know what he would do, and that's been very, that's very different from anything else that I've worked on, where I kind of sketch things out ahead of time. And so this was fun because all of a sudden I like hit a new chapter, and I wasn't sure sure I was going to end. But then some character from a previous chapter would show up and do something that surprised me, you know. And I'd be sitting there in my room. sort of chuckling to myself, you know, or surprised by the way this person sort of seemed to appear kind of out of the, I mean, literally because we're talking about a house, like literally appear out of the woodwork and entered the book. So since then, I decided I'm not going to, although who knows, I'll probably change my mind at some point, but like to sketch a book beforehand and know where it's going. As I look back at that, like that was the way The Winter Soldier was. And it sort of feels like I was kind of coloring something in that I'd already drawn, which a little less exciting than just kind of starting anew um this felt like the story had the characters themselves had more agency they sort of felt like you know people who would surprise me and that's fun
0: you're also not separating anyone from their history and yeah i'm thinking specifically about a couple of points where the story folds back and as you said someone pops up or you realize the connection from one character to a previous there are yeah. lots of moments like that Right, but this idea that you're using history and you—I mean, you do it in all of your books. But the idea that history shapes what we're reading in that moment, like you just can't separate the two. You cannot pretend that the history didn't happen, even if you don't know the history by the letter. Right, it still happened, uh-huh. and it still made us who we are. And you're constantly doing this. And at one point, you wanted to be an archaeologist. Yeah, you study wow. medicine, right? Yeah, like as a child, path. you want okay.
2: Right. Yeah. A long time ago. I mean, I'd still right. love to be an archaeologist, but I think that bird's flown. So.
0: Well, okay. But don't you kind of get to be an archaeologist when you're writing novels?
2: Yeah. True. I mean, Yeah.
0: you've dug out the history of 400 years of a place that I wouldn't be surprised if you could walk into the woods somewhere in Western Mass and find this house that you invented, right? In this orchard that you yeah. invented next to the yeah. woods that you invented. But are you always thinking about the history as you write or are you just character first and then whatever happens happens i mean did you spend 14 years researching the winter soldier or did you just sort of get caught up in
2: life i, I, I spent 14 years having trouble with the winter soldier that's,
0: oh okay that's what happened
2: i did i mean one thing that's different now is now i'm 47
0: mm-hmm. i
2: started the winter soldier I mean that was came you know, like in my early 30s what one can carry in one's mind um, <laughs> yeah. in one's early 30s when you do historical research, is very different than what one can carry right. one's mind in his late forties. So, um, in some ways, I think my relation, and certainly true. I mean, the piano tuner, I remember doing all this research on the Anglo-Burmese mm-hmm. War and just having dates and names, and I mean, something that I truly couldn't do now. I mean, I have to. Right. I take I take all sorts of notes, but in some ways, I think it sort of forced me. in this book, you know, even though each of the periods have has their research because they're mm-hmm. sort of snapshots, are kind of windows into a particular experience. I didn't have to completely understand the, the time period or the historical framework in order to write them. And, and it really lifted the burden of the historical research off of it. So I think in some ways, I mean, probably a lot of writers feel this way. Like you're always trying, if you're not writing about a world that you're, you're intimate, intimately familiar with, you're always trying to sneak by and trick the reader into you know, you, you know, that you know, like everything that I know about saltware pottery is in this book. There's no, I'm no more expert in it. like every, and I really don't know very much about it, but, but my paragraph, it's in the book. But the hope is that it's like creates a, enough of a world that the reader trusts like, gosh, okay, this must be the way they made the pottery. Um, of course, it's not important. What's important in the book is the woman falls in love with someone who's a potter and something tragic happens and, you know, pots break easily, you know, like there's, that's the things that that's important. So the historical research is just enough, I feel, to kind of make you feel, comfortable um that you're gonna suspend disbelief and and remain in that world for a bit
0: well it's also stuff like you know i was talking about the medium earlier because it's such a fun chapter but she's there because the man who now owns the house is trying to turn it into sort of a hunting lodge and he's really hoping that teddy roosevelt will come stay yeah at the house and make his lodge famous and there's a stuffed catamount in yeah. the house as well and you know it's just all of these little bits of detail but i did i laughed when I, you had this guy say carl say oh yeah well i wrote a letter to teddy roosevelt's people and they said he would think about coming <laughs> right
2: right and of course the okay. wife's worried because she's hearing these scandalous noises right and she's worried about what's going to happen if if roosevelt hears these scandalous noises
0: and yet we know that roosevelt is never
2: ever and Never
0: gonna going to come. Set foot. In this house. No, 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 no. <laughs> the stories we tell ourselves, and you know, you are. You're talking about life and death and legacy and memory and what we know and what we believe to be true. You, there is one heartbreaking chapter in there that I was a little mad. I was a little mm. mad because my heart got broken. There's a painter and a poet, but the cast, it's really big. Mm-hmm. It's there is a new set of characters pretty much for every... Ch- because also, too, when we meet people as children, obviously they're not the same as adults, so they really are right entirely new characters in a way. Mm-hmm. Who made the cut? Yeah. <laughs> How did you I mean, decide who made the cut? Who was allowed to stay? Because you could have gone any number of directions.
2: Sure. And they, that's right. So some people will re-emerge and some don't. And some mm-hmm. reemerge very, very subtly. But there's some, I think, I mean, Osgood, for example, and his daughters, in part just because of the size of their personalities, right. wouldn't let me go. Like they okay. were very insistent people. And they're such fun to write that mm-hmm. that any kind of opportunity to bring them back in um, was something that I wanted that right. I wanted to do. One thing I think that, you know, in some ways I think about this book, like I couldn't have written this when I was younger, in part because sort of one of the observations that I found, sort of the remarkable things about now. You know, having sort of spanned, I guess, kind of like a a generation in the sense that people who I know were who were very little children are now adults. So that's a new experience for me. And whereas theoretically, I I could have told you when I was 23 that of course, of course, you know someone when they're younger, they get older. That seems to be sort of a natural state of affairs. But there's really something magical about seeing, for instance, friends, children now as grown-ups. And especially magical seeing them after 16 years of not having seen them. And all of a sudden, the brain sort of tries to connect these two people. And you realize so much has gone on in the meantime. And so I, I just, I love that element of surprise in, in life. Like I love going to reunions. I'm kind of a shy person. So I like the yeah. idea of sort of talking to everybody at a reunion, that's a little overwhelming. But like, I just love the effect of going to like a college or a high school, especially high school reunion, sort of extraordinary, like coming back and like seeing these people you're fast forwarding through the life of 20 years, and so in a way, there's this. This is like there's a, you know series of reunions that occur in the book, whereas you see somebody when there's a, when they're a little girl, maybe just peering into a room. In the case of one of the characters, she you know, she peers into the room to see her dad, who's the guy who's building the hunting launch, to see him at this sort of ridiculous séance. We don't know that she's going to be key, but then we find out later on that you know she's sort of a central character in the book, but. 40 years will have elapsed by the time she reappears again as a as a important character. I, I love the way when jumps forward through time and I think that that's something an experience I hadn't had sort of until kind of recently.
0: Literary influences for you seem to range pretty widely. I mean as I was researching for this show obviously we've got the whole Heart of Darkness piano tuner sort of parallel. You read mm-hmm. a lot of Samarago and Antonio Lobo Antunes for Mm -hmm. When You Were Working on a Far Country and then Certainly The Winter Soldier, their its own sort of World War I parallels, but not quite. This book, Northwoods, feels like it pulls from a lot of different places. And I'm wondering if we can talk literary influences for a second, because the overall narrative voice is very controlled. It's often very funny. It's really precise in a way that just opens up the world, right? Mm. You just give us a lot of runway and these sentences are just, ugh. but it feels like it pulls from a million different directions.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing you mentioned, I'm I'm glad you like the humor of it. Um, I mean, that's, that's always a hard thing, right? Cause To to tell a joke that's not funny is kind of painful. To tell something that you want to be scared that's not that scary, yeah, it's not so bad. But tell a joke that falls flat's tough. But at the same time, when I was writing it, uh, I mean, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say Pantooner, certainly not far country, is a book that tries to have humor in it at all. Mm -hmm. Winter Soldier, there's more of that. And, you know, maybe it's as the world itself seems a little more trouble. You know, I couldn't sort of sit down. The book is a lot about climate change. I mean, the, the climate's changing around the house. And um, it's very painful to think about it. I couldn't just like sit and write that in sort of the dark sense of you know, the way it seems like things are going, but to find some kind of lightness in it felt so important. And so that drove a lot of it. But I think also this kind of appreciation as just as I've read that all the books I love are actually really funny. And they're not like Madame Bovary is not thought of as a funny book. Usually it's not talked about, it's really funny. A lot of Tolstoy is really funny. I think there's you know people who have inspired me to think sort of structurally outside the box, like David Mitchell, really funny.
0: Yeah, 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 oh, without a. doubt, um,
2: Mitchell. And, and it can be deeply dark, but at the same time, mm-hmm. um, really funny. And so so I think that's one set of influences. Um, they're the New England writers. Um, so like, you know, you can't write about New England without being influenced by Thoreau and and not just his attention to the natural world, but also even this kind of chronological structure of the book. Um, is something that, that is inspired by Walden, inspired by his journals. Um, and there's wonderful publication. So he kept journals, and then at different points in his life, they published um, spring, summer, autumn, um, winter, journals of his. But, would, but the way they were published, it's still published today, but published back then as well, was that they would have an entry from, say, like September 19th, but it would be 1843. And then the next entrance entry would be September 20th, um eighteen fifty four. So it wasn't the year that mattered. It was the date that mattered. And so you get just this progression through the year. It's not fiction, but I loved it. Um, I loved um uh, Hawthorne's journals also are just wonderful to read. And in some ways, you know hawthorne's fiction i f- I find sometimes difficult. and you know, because of the 19th century style, it's it's you know hard and uh, ornate and but it, but his journals are fresh and um, you know, filled with ideas for his own fiction. And they feel very, there's something very alive and modern about them. Um, and then and I think also for this, other influences were non-fictional or you know, sort of non-traditional literary influences. so like I love weird texts, like I love songs. Um, so so these have these this these songs that are actually older than the period that they're written. So this family has a tradition of writing songs that goes back hundreds of years and they sort of like write these songs together and that's based on a style of song that was sort of prevalent in england about a 100 years before the family actually starts writing it and i and i love them um there's some wonderful ones that i teach and and so i thought if i'd be able to try this out myself seemed a lot of fun you know crime novels you mentioned the crime writer so pulp fiction like the idea that you know, some of that writing is really gripping it's and it's not i don't think that i could write pulp, a full novel built of pulp. Pulp fiction. I certainly couldn't write a full song novel, but the chance to kind of play around with it and have fun with it and sort of see like what does my language sound like in this um, in this very different yeah. tone. It's like kind of you know trying on a different kind of English, and 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 so that was really influential.
0: You do a lot with a line here, mm-hmm. three lines there. It doesn't yeah. always have to be the thing. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like, all right, I'm just uh-huh. going to drop this. And then uh-huh. I'm going to keep going, and yeah,
2: it's we got to get you 400 respect. years, so we can't.
0: It's oh, but it's such, it's such a. There's, it, I'm laughing too when I'm thinking about the guy with the metal detector who you've just got this one line that suggests there was a lot of weirdness before he gets there because he finds a pantry that's full of canned beans, almost like bomb shelter food, right? Like these non-perishables yeah. kind right. of thing, and when you know who's been there, right. Before this guy, it makes perfect sense. And you're like, well, he was trying. Right. I you get these layers and layers and layers. So you're sitting down with these characters. You've just told us that they're sort of revealing themselves to you mm-hmm. as you're writing. So you kind of have to give up control.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then you write these sentences where clearly you don't give up control. <laughs> and they're beautiful. But writing and rewriting how much of the writing is rewriting how much of this was just sort of okay i've got the thing that i need
2: yeah it it really depended on the chapter um so like the song the songs for instance were uh, there's a lot of rewriting you know like um you know just just trying to get the rhymes and other characters you know and then there's some challenges like um like you mentioned the twins their story spans a long period of time oh yes it does and so there's There's a challenge, I think it's just writer's challenge of condensation in that chapter. Like, how do we get from them being little girls into them being very old ladies? You know, that I remember. That was one of the chapters that I didn't finish in its allotted month. um, And I had to go back later on to kind of work through. Um, Other chapters, like for some reason, the voice, you know, felt very comfortable. So Morris Lakeman, the metal detectorist, I think in some ways, like I'd spent all this time writing in different historical periods and trying to imagine the, diff- the history and trying to incorporate the the bit of research that I'd done to all of a sudden hit this guy um, in the, in an, you know, 1980s, 1990s, essentially a contemporary story who has my world, has my streets. I could just kind of be him um, and imagine what it would like to be like to him. He was also a very expansive person, who um, kind of loves the world despite some bad things that have happened to him. Um, and so he's just sort of omnivorous. And what was wonderful is that you know sometimes removing something from a book is hard, and including everything. But he's somebody who just has this appetite. He loves birds. He loves finding things in the ground. Yeah, he f- he finds the cans in the house. You know that we know have this sort of dark kind of story. He's like, oh, I'll eat them. You <laughs> know they look good to me. I'll, I'll have them. Um, he just kind of rolls with it. So someone like that just you know, it's fun to be with. It's just kind of like being in conversation with someone and you just kind of want to let them talk and not even say anything yourself. So so he was relatively easier. Um, so it was a mix, I guess. It's yeah.
0: Long- and Morris really likes to talk. We meet Morris when he's practicing a speech.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's
0: a, it's one a of great the touch. It's a great it's a touch. Speech. Morris doesn't know what he doesn't know. And again, like the fact that we actually do know more Then this wide range of voices is part of the fun because I know I said this earlier in the show, but I always felt like I was really grounded in the story that I never lost my place in what was happening. And again, 400 years, big cast, lots of things happen.
3: We're Mm -hmm. not
0: just sitting under a tree watching, you know, the grass grow and the house get built and all of this. I mean, a lot happens in this book and it's such a delight to be grounded mm. in these people and their shared history and all of the things they don't know.
2: Mm-hmm. Literally, literally grounded. It's, it's like a funny of, right? Like what's in the ground at this place. That's like what he's going to, because they all kind of come and, you know, different character remarks at a certain point, I think a couple characters, were, like there's a lot of bodies around here, but of course there's a lot of bodies everywhere. I mean, that's what history is. There's bodies all around. And this is one particular house that has, you know, probably a few more bodies than usual. Mm,
0: Um, Sounds like it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, But who knows? Maybe not. You know, who knows what's what's outside right now.
0: I want to dance around the ending a little bit, because obviously we're not going to spoil it, but it was fantastic. It was Mm. organic. It was exactly what I needed as I Mm. was finishing this book. Did you know this is where you were going. I mean, obviously, we need to get to a point where you can say sort of fin, you know. And, uh, uh, right. But it's gorgeous the way this book ends. There's a device that you use. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. When did you figure that out? Um, the
3: device, at the, end. the
0: Okay, because the device does pop a little earlier, too, and it's like, yeah. okay, okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I mean, <laughs> we're going to dance around trying not to give things away. I mean, like there's there, it brings in a couple of things early on. I mean, at that point, I knew mean, that's what was happening. So anyway, that's what the <laughs> book was about. And that stories that seem to have been lost to time are, re- are reappearing. Um, but there's a grand reappearance at the end of the book by a character we think's long been long gone in a way. And that was a surprise to me. And that was one of the moments that I mentioned where, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, Oh, this makes me so happy that he's back and I get to see him again. And, um, and I get to imagine what would this be like for him here? You know, it's like, see this friend you haven't seen in a long time. Not only the joy of seeing them again, but also putting them into a new situation and just like wondering what are they going to do in in this new world? And so that was a surprise, but up until I I, I had thought it might run through even farther than it actually runs. That was one possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you know, I think when I kind of got to that last month and and right. you know that last that last bit, it it began to feel like no, this is where things are gonna gonna wrap up.
0: It felt really right. It okay. just it felt Thanks. really right. really right. So hello, confused listeners. Um apologies, just go read Northwoods because I wasn't entirely sure where you were going, but I knew I was willing to follow you. Mm. And when I realized what exactly was going, and it and honestly, it's not like you don't know sort of as you're coming into the home stretch, again, I laughed out loud. I had a great. I was just like, okay, this is really audacious. This is really, this is a great choice. Of course, it's this with these people. Yeah, I'm smiling, just thinking about it. I really am. It's Thanks. um the exuberance of it. And and again, the audacity, I mean, it's not something I would have, having read the earlier work, it's not something I would have expected, necessarily. Mm-hmm. You're a lot looser on the page in this
2: book, yeah, I think. Thanks. No, it, it felt that way. It was more yeah. fun to write the other ones, I think, for for that reason. It was something, you know, when one writes, like, when, like, you have these ideas, I want to write them, and then, of course, I'm, like, looking for a way to tell the story, mm-hmm. um, and I'm so sure we're all writers, like, walking around right. with these ideas, and you're just like, what's the way to tell this one? You know, and if there's certain ideas, every few years we'll bring an idea out and try it this way, try it that way. And this happened to be, it felt like this, this structure that kind of allowed for a certain amount of fun, exuberance, and expansiveness. Um, that felt very different to me than some previous things that I've written. I mean, especially you know, my second book was very contained. And I think that was sort of a lesson to me, too contained. Um, I couldn't do much with that. I sort of set these terms up. The strictures were too intense, and I've always had that in mind since then, sort of trying to create worlds to kind of allow for an expansiveness.
0: Do you think you're going to stick with the present day for a little bit, or are you just going to keep doing your thing? Because you do, yeah. the way you connect history and people and place, and I mean, that's what literature is supposed to do, right? Like, I get really excited when I have a novel in front of me that just does, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the longest thing in the world, or it can be, or it can be short. I just, I want the world on page which is what i get when i read you but i mean it changes when you're talking about the present day versus you know burma in the 1800s.
1: yeah
2: yeah originally i thought god this was fun like especially the chapter like morris's chapter where it's just yeah. free it's in the present sense i don't have to do a lot of research i can just right. kind of expand into things i should really try that again and just see what it would be like to set a book now Um, And so I began something, and then I was kind of drawn back into a historical Mm -hmm. story. And then I kind of caught myself, this is a long way of saying it's like, I'm kind of uh, trying to figure out what to do next right now. But one of the tensions I think you rightly point out is that um, there's something wonderful about writing in the world that one knows, and there's a kind of Mm -hmm. freedom that allows. Um, But at the same time, I'm just kind of drawn to these different tones, these older rhythms, these sort are of strange moments in history that kind of allow us to see what's going on now. So I'll I'll see.
0: Okay. Because more than once, people have described your writing as old-fashioned. And I'm like, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, not everyone has to be Robert Coover, right? Like, mm-hmm. tell the story that suits the people and the moment and the writer. I mean, everyone, That's that's the beauty of narrative voice, right? Like, you find the thing. Uh-huh. And sometimes you get it on the first swing, the way you did with the piano. I like, I still, I know I keep coming back to this, but you were in medical school writing a novel that's great. Yeah. It's totally great. And you were in, med- I, I still, I'm having a moment where I'm just like, uh, well, you know, I don't really like to you. email when I'm on the phone. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Well, I do. I also do now. I mean, I would say that um, not to like put my 23 year old self down at all um but like i did i wrote that book then sort of in you know stolen hours and then it took eight years to write a book that's like half the length of that one okay doing that full time so like the way inspiration comes is totally bizarre to me um and you know then it was like 14 years for the next one so like clearly you know there's sometimes they're just there's certain structure so like why piano tuner came out of me more easily than certainly than the next two books did. And like why was that the case? And I think about that because, of course, it like it affects my days. And I think part of it's the structure of that book. It's a travel book. It's a book seen through a character who's experiencing the world for the first time. So he's as innocent as we are. But I also think that I was just like you know you talk about that exuberance. like I was also just excited. I'd never done this before. I'd never written more than like a ten page essay in college. And so all of a sudden to have written eleven pages was thrilling, and then twelve was thrilling. and so sort of that kind of like caught me up and pulled me along and it didn't feel like work and it felt like these sort of stolen hours and I think all that helped in that moment and then next book comes along and all of a sudden it's kind of a job um and I'm trying something different and I pick a structure that's not as easy and um and so sort of all of a sudden um it turns out the experience that um you know the first time sort of came about I felt somewhat actually wasn't at all and so, so I don't know. It doesn't necessarily get easier uh, along along the way.
0: Are you still writing stories as well, short stories? Yeah,
2: yeah, and and that's something that you know since since Northwoods sort of been finished, I'm done with editing for it, mm-hmm. I've been playing around with with some of those. And um, you know, I, I love that as I like the chance to visit an idea or a world mm-hmm. for even if I don't want to commit so you know, many years to it. Or can't, Regi-
0: yeah, I really like the flow of the stories in Registry.
3: Okay, Um Thanks.
0: And I just, the way you play with time, it, yeah, I just, I, overall, it just hangs really well as a collection. So I would yeah. not be sad to see another collection of stories. I just would like to maybe not wait 15 years if that's okay. Yeah,
2: I'd rather not wait 15
0: years. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, <laughs> I realize I'm... you have kids and a dog and other things, you know, another job. But it would be kind of great if we did See something and not have to wait 15 years. But
2: I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, not, it, not writing or having trouble writing is agonizing. So uh, I'd be quite happy if if it, I don't have too many 15 year chunks left. So,
0: well, and also it does seem like you've hit a different cadence. I mean, Winter Soldiers 18, Registry is 2020. And here we are talking in 23. So I think that bodes well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so. going <laughs> to take that as yes. it is. I'm knocking kind of on, on a lot of wood right now. So okay.
2: fingers are crossed, toes are crossed.
0: Well, luckily, listeners and readers everywhere have Northwoods. And I cannot stress how special and slightly weird, but how mm-hmm. special this book is. It is, it's a treat. It is a wild reading experience. It is a million kinds of satisfying. And it's just exactly, exactly the book I needed at this moment and i really cannot wait really super cannot wait and if you're in my everyday life be prepared there are copies coming your way but uh daniel thank you so much for joining us northwoods is out now if you haven't read the piano tuner or the winter soldier or registry of my passage among the earth or farfield um really those are all out in paperback so you should grab those too yeah
2: thank you so much it's been really fun
0: I'm Iwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And if you have not yet picked up The Beasting, I promise you it is worth all 644 pages. And yes, did I just look at my notes? I did because it didn't feel like I was reading 644 pages. It flew. And Paul Murray, you might know, mostly is the author of Skippy Dies, which 661 pages. And that seems to be your sweet spot, 600 plus pages, because both of those books just lie. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
4: My pleasure, Mia. Thanks for having me.
0: The Bee sting, just published. It's long listed for the Booker Award. We don't yet have the short list. I suppose we have to wait patiently, but hopefully. Fingers crossed. But The Bee sting is, I'm looking at my notes for a second, a novel about climate change, denial, grief, desire, love, adolescence, both the real kind and the protracted kind, Ghost Class, Money, Legacy, Loneliness, Family Mythology, Fatherhood, and Twists of Fate. And I don't think I've missed anything, but typical Paul Murray, you got a lot into this novel. Yeah, yeah. It just kept
4: growing and growing. You know, really like, well, like Skippy Dies, but really like most of the things I write, it started as it was going to be something completely different and much kind of shorter and less ambitious. And then, but just once, once you kind of get in a groove, and um, like for me, the sign that a book is working, like something that I'm work, working on is actually sort of coming to life is just the fact that it'll start to spark all of these like new ideas, new directions, you know. So like it, it's just it's like just the this maximalist kind of way that my brain seems to work. So it's like, you know, if it's good, it, it'll just means that it gets like longer
1: and, longer and longer.
0: I love the fact that you thought Skippy Dies was actually just going to be a short story. About a history teacher and a student, and the history teacher trying to figure out what the students deal is. So, you know, typical short story is what twenty pages ish. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's start. Let's start with the bee sting for a second. You knew, obviously, this was not going to be a short story. You knew this was going to be a novel. But did you know that you wanted to set it in post-crash Ireland? Did you know that that's where it kind of had to start because this family. Everything that happens to the Barnes family happens, really. Let's start with the crash.
4: Uh, okay, so the crash, the crash in Ireland was so I, I, Ireland. To give you a bit of like um, economic background, um, Ireland historically like very, very poor country, one of the poorest countries in Europe, and so many Irish people like emigrated to, to the US and elsewhere because you know there was just nothing happening here. Um, in sort of the mid late nineties, Ireland suddenly became very, very wealthy as a result of this massive influx of American, mostly, like pharma and and tech one. Um, And there's still a huge, huge presence, like a tech and and pharma and banking presence uh, in Ireland now. But um, it went almost overnight um, from being this, like, uh, you know, sort of almost third world country to being, like, I think it was the wealthiest country in the world. It was certainly the most globalized country in the world, whatever that means people sort of used that, but Irish people sort of used that like huge kind of uh, transformation to kind of paper over the huge well of like grief and trauma that the previous, you know, century or two um, um, ha- had been. So having been kind of ruled and dominated and abused by the Catholic Church, all of that was jettisoned in this like very, very kind of like, uh, you know, quick way. And suddenly everybody was, you know, worshipping consumerism and like, you know, driving convertibles and drinking expensive cocktails. And like, really, sort of like uh, behaving as capitalistically as as we, we could. Um, and what happened was that, like, after like, like in a fable, you know, after like, you know, ten years, like the pumpkin, like this, the the, the carriage turned back into a pumpkin. There was this, uh, there was like the global financial crash, uh, and that kind of like dovetailed with this, like, the property crash in Ireland, and it was like it was ruined. The country was ruined in, like, I think it was the biggest destruction of wealth. In peacetime in in history like it was just this it was like an absolute annihilation and the crash went on for much longer in ireland than it did in anywhere else in the world as far as more um so in the book like if you if you were in the car trade car trade is at the absolute sort of like the like um apex of the boom because like the first thing everybody did when the boom happened was go and buy like a fancy new car. Because like what what like what better symbol of like independence and and autonomy and so on uh, and individualism than than a car? So um, family in the car and the, the in the book has this 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 Volkswagen business and they've got very rich very quickly. Um, and when the crash happens, like the car industry was like absolutely the worst hit. Um, I think car sales fell like it was something like sixty percent. And the family in, in, in the book, the Barnes family, they're they've just about kind of crawled their way through the um, like the six years of the crash. Now it's twenty fourteen, uh, like first for the first time, like green shoots are starting to appear. But it looks like it might be too late, and they're going to go under. And all of the things that they've they've kind of been covering over themselves um, are starting. All the cracks they've kind of tried to cover over with money um, are starting to spread through the house and um, tried to bring it down.
0: Can you talk about the Midlands for a second? Because it feels like a very deliberate choice to put a good piece of the action, as it were, outside of a city. And it really does stress the characters in ways that I think city life would not, but I don't really know exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the Midlands. So
4: The Midlands is like, if you think about Ireland, um, you know, as you might have encountered it, like, in in movies, Um, you tend to think either, like, of Dublin or else more usually you think of, like, the beautiful, like, romantic uh, landscapes of, like, mostly the coast, like, so, you know, the Cliffs of Mower or, or, like, Kerry or Donegal, like, just wild landscapes with, like, waves smashing up cliffs uh, and people, you know, staring completely into the the sea and so on. And the Midlands is, is not like that. The Midlands is, like, Ireland's, like, a very, very small country. But at the same time, there's kind of these very distinct flavors to to the to the different parts of it. The Midlands is it's flat, uh, and it's pretty. I'm trying not to sort of get myself in trouble, but like it's 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 not wildly romantic. It's a place that people kind of tend to pass through or to leave. Um, it's got there's lots of beautiful parts of the Midlands, but the town in book is like it's a pretty boring town. Like there's like there's a computer factory. Um, that's about it. Uh, the only thing people kind of care about is, is Gaelic football, uh, and there's, there's nothing to do. And the, the, the girl in the book, casts, she's like determined to just get out of there. So, so the first time you see the, you see the town
3: mm-hmm. is through her eyes right. and she's just
4: saying, you know, I can't wait to get out of here because like, it's just, it's not desolate. Like for a teenager, it's desolate, but like, it's, it's just very drab and, um, and uninteresting. And I came to the Midlands, like, I, d- I didn't know much about the Midlands, Like my, my parents are from other parts of the country. I have two friends from the Midlands, and both of them are involved in the car industry or have families involved in the car industry. Oh, okay. And the books sort of appeared, like, in this very kind of um, organic way, just from stories people told me, and particularly those those two guys, um, my friend Joe and my friend Anne-Marie just told me these stories about car, the car industry in the Midlands. And uh, if you're working in the car industry in the Midlands, in a town in the Midlands, you're like a serious player in the town. Yeah. So that's that's where it all kind of took off.
0: Dickie and Amelda, are mom and dad Barnes. We've got Cass, who you mentioned, her little brother PJ. And then we've got the ghost of Dickie's brother. And I'm going to dance around that story a little bit. But you need to know that Dickie had a brother. And you need to know that Dickie's dad is called Morris. And he's quite... He's the guy who establishes the business, and you describe Dickie as a guy who would really much rather be reading a book and isn't entirely sold on the idea of the car business. And his dad has hoofed it off to Portugal or Spain to retire. But everyone's caught in this declining business. And Imelda is selling her jewelry and the furniture. And other assorted stuff. So, the Barnes family, can we talk about them as a unit for a second? I mean, obviously, you've got this backdrop of the crash, you've got this backdrop of the Midlands, but this family's pretty spectacular in their discomfort and the things that they learn and this story, but they're really kind of great. So, how did they start? They started
4: with casts. Like, I started the book, as I say, like, I started wanting. Trying to write it like a different book. It was going to be like a kind of a romantic comedy set in Trinity College in Dublin, and there was going to be a boy, like a South Dublin boy, and uh, yeah, like 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 that's Saturday a very images.
0: different book from this book.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, I just like I mean, I, I started. I was looking at I was looking at, um, at the manuscript today because I've been yeah. saying I've been saying in interviews that like I started as, and immediately realized I didn't want to write about Trinity, but that's not quite how it was. Like so it was going to be this two-hander Starting, you know, so alternating chapters between the boy and the girl, boy from South Dublin, girl from Midlands, and what happened was like I wrote the first chapter, um, the boy's point of view, and then the the second chapter was was the girl's point of view. You know, that was cast, and uh, it started with her backstory in this Midlands town, and I just kept going with that. Like I, I sort of I didn't I found that I I wasn't really interested in in the boy. I mean, I could sort of have constructed like kind of a, a a working workable comedy from it. I just my heart wasn't in it. Um, whereas Cass, partly because I didn't really know much about the Midlands, each of the family is um has secrets uh, and each of the family they're they're all trying to escape. They're all like they're all kind of like good people, um, but they've reached a point in their lives. You you talk about discussing the family as a as a unit. Um and I guess the only thing that unites them is that they're all trying to escape. Like they're all each of them sees the family as this kind of like this failed enterprise. Uh, and it's this kind of negative space that they have to kind of, uh, if they're going to survive, they have to, to to get away from it. So Cass is trying to get, go, go to Trinity and Dylan. And PJ is trying to sort of disappear into a video game. And Imelda's considering an affair. And Dickie's trying to, you know, uh, partic- disastrously sort of retrieve the past and kind of re enter the past. That's the one thing that unites them is that they're, they're united in this kind of dysfunctional kind of attempt to escape. Um, and they're not united as well in that, like, neither, none of them sort of sees kind of the, any the positives that they have, like the good things that they have. Like, they don't sort of see the Like, we can sort of see kind of commonalities between the different family members. They don't. Each of those, like, you know, you know, the rest of the family is just like, um, like those guys are just these kind of weird aliens.
0: And they really, seriously, do not know each other's. Secrets, and that's part of why I wanted to set them up as a unit for a second, because here they are living in the same space, and Imelda and Dickie have been married since they were teenagers, and no one knows anyone else. Even the siblings kind of don't know each other, and it's wild to me how little connection this family thinks they have, the members of this family think that they have, and that you're playing with this idea of surface right? And what the appearances are, and of course, how much it matters. And for this family to be where they are now, like this kind of epic fall from grace, right? Like, it's clear that Imelda has come from very little. And Dickie was clearly raised in a class above hers. And yet, neither of them can handle what's happening. They can't be, I mean, they're almost having a second adolescence each of their own, and can't really be present for their children, and yet they really love their children. They just don't quite know what they're doing. And you write about parenthood, specifically fatherhood, actually, when you look at Morris and Dickie. You write about fatherhood in a really interesting way. And I'm wondering if that was part of where this novel came from, like wanting to look at that. Because fatherhood isn't always like we have a lot of novels about mothers and mothers and daughters, and we've had novels about fatherhood for a while. And then they seem to have just fallen out of favor.
4: I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't sort of set out to write about fatherhood, but I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I've got a son and I was interested in, I guess I was interested in sort of two aspects of parentage, which are probably sort of, you know, two sides of the same coin. And, one of which was the way that, like, when you're a kid, you see your parents as basically kind of cartoons. You see them as yeah, kind of yeah. one-dimensional creatures. Like, you know that they're, they, they like, objectively speaking, you know that they have a past, in that you've seen pictures of them with, you know, like, like, sideburns or, like, you know, where... Yeah. <laughs> like you don't re- You sort of think, like, that they, you know, they didn't really exist until you came along, and you're sort of the one that sort of, you know, gave them... They're just kind of kicking around until, you know, so the first time you see you see the, the parents, it's through Cass's eyes. And they do seem kind of like these kind of one-dimensional sort of uh you know, so shallow entities. So that was kind of one thing that interested me, you know, the fact that like, you know, you, you don't you don't really sort of imagine your parents having a past. And then when you become a parent, you realize that uh that your parents like weren't in fact humans, you know, and we're and we're sort of we're kind of instead of being these kind of like these these uh like mono-dimensional, like uh like godlike is not right, but like these kind of kind of like monolithic um one-dimensional entities that would sort of hand down kind of arbitrary rules. Parent your parents just like improvising, you know? And your parents were sort of like also just taking their cues from the the, the times. Like and it's like very sort of like I like I'm constantly looking at like this is, you know, if it's a newspaper article that like you know, five things you must do to stop your child from becoming black. Like, oh god, I should, I should read this, you know? And that's what your parents are doing. Like they're just they're, they're just like improvising, but they're also like just drawing in all these influences um from, from like the world around them to kind of create this role. So that was the other aspect of it I was interested in. Mm-hmm. The way that like you're sort of you have to develop a persona for yourself. You have to become like the lawgiver. You have to become someone with like uh who 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 knows what's right and what's wrong and will tell you the child um when they're doing right when they're doing wrong it's it's interesting like so i guess like so for me like becoming a parent like if you're a writer i, I think you sort of tend to define yourself like in opposition to you know quote unquote like sort of mainstream society uh, and you see yourself as kind of like marginal uh or someone sort of who who's sort of whose role is to critique society and then when you've got a kid you're sort of drawn back into the establishment you've got to go to the doctor and get like vaccinations you've got to go to the pta meetings uh you've got to do all these kind of um you know, boring things that, that you sort of you can find yourself against. Like Dick, Dickie in the book is, is like, he's someone who's, like he's invested in his role as a parent, but he's much more invested in his role as like just a good bourgeois, like a burger of the town, you know, not like a hamburger, but like just like, just a, a wealthy person who's got this role, this kind of quite paternalistic role of like just, just giving money to the, like this local sports club, giving money to charity just like known for his kind of benevolence and that kind of paternalism. Uh, And he's using that role to kind of like obliterate his actual self, you know? And that was just to come back to the, to the, to the economic boom, like the Celtic tiger, as it was, as it was known here. Like um, it was an interesting time for parents because it was this huge shift that I was trying to, trying to, described for you there like where where we went from being like this like really like a a theocracy like this priest-driven country right to a country that was like driven by like money so like everyone's kind of instead of looking at the priest in the pulpit everyone is looking at like you know um like reality shows from the u.s right like how do rich people behave here's what you do here's the stuff you have so parents suddenly had like no moral compass because like the church was like so disgraced you know it was Mm -hmm. just gone um, so people like didn't really have a sense of like who they were and you saw this like really devastating effect on their children so like in skippy dies like I just spoke about teenagers teenage boys and the kids were really like you know um kids were the, the really the, the ones who were sort of who were kind of um bearing the the, the, the burden of their parents' sense of like of disorientation because like the yeah. kids were going, you know what do I do? the parents were off, you know, like, buying, like, handbags or, or like, or shopping trips in New York, whatever it might be, you know. Mm-hmm. Parents, like, were, like, had sort of just jettisoned that whole role. And it was, like, very, very damaging in this, like, very literal, um, visible way in terms of suddenly this generation of kids with, like, eating disorders or or, or self-harming, whatever it might be. So um, so the parents in the book, Melvin and, and Dickie, they're not quite as bad as that, but their sense of themselves is very much predicated on their money, you know, they've got all this money, money's gone. Who are they? They don't know. So they're trying to kind of like rebuild themselves. And um, and the kids, uh, without really knowing, without kind of blaming their parents, I think the kids are sort of like just falling and falling and falling through this kind of void because the parents um, aren't able to even see them to kind of pull.
0: I kept thinking as I was reading The Beasting that Howard the Coward Fallon from Skippy Dies would fit very well into this world. And, you know, some of the kids actually would fit sort of in PJ and Cass's sort of set. And I went back and I reread Skippy right before I read The Beasting. And, you know, that timeline, as you're describing, sort of, you know, Skippy's what, 2003, essentially? Yeah. Like early aughts? Yeah. And now, as you said, we're in, we're in 14 for the bulk of Beasting, but we are going to flip back a few decades, the continuum and the confusion and also the grief. I mean, the grief that you, this idea that sort of permeates Skippy Dies, you know, this World War One. Howard teaches history, he's got this thing about World War One, and you even said at some point there's this intersection between science and technology and money and grief that the world saw around world war one that we're all kind of seeing now again and no one really knows how to process it and you know part of me was just like well i know howard isn't exactly dickie's peer but these guys are on a continuum. they exist like they exist in a way where sort of they're figuring out masculinity and communication and all of these things that they just genuinely don't know how to do. And they're perfectly representative of what you just talked about, this whole idea that the money thing, if you haven't read Skippy Dies, Howard's career as a banker didn't work out. Now he's teaching at a fancy prep school in uh, back in Ireland. But for you, I can't tell, and this is partially because I just have so much fun reading you. You've said in interviews that plotting is not easy for you. And I'm just, as a reader, I'm having a hard time believing that. Because both of these books just fly. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. And, and there's some stylistic choices that you make in The Beasting. I actually told someone that you used no punctuation whatsoever in The Beasting. And then I had to go back and I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's punctuation in some of it. It's just Imelda's chapters, but it's really propulsive. It's really yeah. like this story is really, right. really propulsive. So how much of it for you is the engineering of the plot and oh. how much of it is just letting Dicky and Amelda and Cass and PJ go.
4: Well, like if I'm if I'm teaching a class like there's this Henry James line like what is character but the determination of plot? What is Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. But you know that one, right from the art of fiction. So it's like like they're, they're they're braided together um and I guess for this book like I was saying like uh if I feel like something is working it tends to manifest as new directions for the plot but all but the plot is very much like but, but that's also sort of like um it's just like as jen says like it's this it's the illustration of characters so, so like the, the for this book more so than the other ones i guess like i really wanted to stay true to the to the voices so like it's it's very much kind of like that each section kind of leans in really close to the to to one of the one of the characters so they're kind of driving it but at the same time like yeah, it just it just it just it just it just like generated like just 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 um more and more and more story, and that's what really excites me. Like I I really like books with stories. Like I like like I admire Seibal like immensely. I find myself a little bit frustrated when I read books which is just about you know like a man walks around New York and thinks about Wagner, you know. And you're like, oh, I feel like I I read this before, you know. It's 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 um I feel like life is full of stories. Like people are carrying around. So much like you're talking about grief like and and i think of of ireland as a place that's been like so traumatized in the last sort of you know 100 years right. and is like has, has, has like dealt with that like uniquely badly i feel like every country has trauma and and history is like taken this hammer to every single you know um people on, on earth but like i feel like in ireland the way we dealt with that was just like to, to bury it you know um and the thing about Burying things is that it doesn't work you know so t- t- grief keeps on reaching up and also like i feel like the story like it's an interesting time to be alive you know um again maybe it's always an interesting time to be alive i don't know it just feels like there's so much ferment and uh a change mm-hmm. in our society at the moment, like largely because of technology i guess um but it just makes for like there's, there's so much there's a lot to write about, you know um and that's what really excites me it's this kind of like this collision between like these these characters and um these massive forces of like economics and like technology and religion and grief that like in Ireland like which is just like it's so tiny it's such a tiny country yet all of these in partly because of just there's just so much like um American investment here and these American companies sitting up here uh like hey Facebook's EU headquarters is here for instance you know Goldman Sachs works at blah blah, blah. Um, so all of these huge forces are like operating in Ireland and like traversing like Ireland and and also like meeting these like waves of like grief and history that we haven't kind of dealt with. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun to be
0: had from that. And that's exactly it. There's a lot of fun to be had. You're very funny on the page. I mean, and there are moments in certainly in Skippy Dies and certainly in the beasting where stuff happens and it's not always great. And yet you find the humor. And for me as a reader, like, I really, really do appreciate someone who can use humor in a way that isn't cheap, right? Like, I, I have a very bleak sense of humor. I, I'm a New Englander by birth. Like, that's just a factory setting, right? Like, we're just, you've spent time in New England, you know. <laughs> we are those people. But the way you do it on the page, how much of that is you just saying, I'm going to tell the story the way I want to be told a story? And how much of that is, I also need space to breathe? I mean, it seems to me that you had a very good time writing this book, but there are moments where characters have pieces of their lives revealed and you're just like, I mean, my eyes got very big in a couple of different points and I think you know what I'm referring to. But where does that balance come in for you? That's
4: a good question. I mean, I think some of it is just like you say, the factory fault. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. just, you know, if you're if you lean towards like comedy, like you know, dark comedy, maybe particularly. Like, I didn't sort of sit down and go, like, well, I need I need more jokes in this section. That's that's I would never do that. I had I had a tutor once, Ellie Smith, who's like you know, amazing amazing writer. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
4: she has the concept of the the safe trap. The safe trap is when you're you're writing and you're sort of you're feeling anxious and you you sort of tilt back into the thing you know you're good at you know so so which for me is humor so i'm very conscious of like not using it cheaply so i'm I'm glad to hear you say that for me working on 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 this book and and all the books like as a writer like i like to because you're revising it like again and again and again and if there's jokes in there it leavens it for me as as well as for the reader you know if i can sort of like if i if i'm something makes me laugh yeah. Um In the middle of something that I've worked on before, like mm-hmm. that's that's just something that I feel it's encouraging. If right. like a joke is funny or still funny to me, uh, whereas it's harder to gauge with with uh, other other sort of parts of the book or other tones that are in the book. I'm also like conscious of like the reader. Like if you know if it's a long book, I feel like I want it to be propulsive. Like ideally, I want it to be a story because I don't want because I know that I, I if I am reading a book that is like kind of monotonous. Mm-hmm. Uh, or dull, or worthy. Like I, I just don't. I find myself drifting off, you know. So I wanted to be, uh, you know, kind of like rewards um, to the reader in terms of like the, the plot, and also in terms of jokes. But, but, but I think sociologically, like Irish people, they're very good at talking. Well, they're mm-hmm. either completely silent and impossible to talk to, right? Or else they tend to be kind of good at talking. By which I mean, like, just they're good at like um, misdirecting. You. Uh, in different ways. And humor is like an amazing way of, of misdirecting. So it's quite an Irish thing to sort of like to make things into a joke. Uh, like there's, a, there's a, something I would talk about when I was researching Skippy Dies, like there's a lot about World War I, as you said. There's a thing about like the 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 soldiers when they'd walk across no man's land and they'd see like body
1: parts
4: poking out of the soil. And um, which was obviously like almost impossible to to kind of process brand because it, it, it was the body part of someone you knew for you know um for all you might be aware uh, so the joke was like you know if, you, if you, there was a hand reaching out of the soil you, you just you'd shake the hand you know, <laughs> just reach out the hand. wow As you do okay well because like and they'd make these little sort of like little magazines like these scenes yeah. like just among the tra- throughout the trenches of just you know this like, super clean comedy but it was just this pressure valve that you had to have or else you'd go like ins- you'd just go insane people went insane anyway but it was one way of dealing with it. So in the book, like, um, I don't think that, like, by and large, people who are traumatized uh, in Ireland, like, I don't, without wanting to generalize, like, often the way they deal with it is, like, jokes. Um, so that's, that. so it felt like it was a legitimate way to have, have, the, have the people behave. But also it was just, like, it made the book, like, more fun for me to write. Like, the book was fun to write, even though there's so much kind of grief in it. It was fun to write, and it made it fun to kind of like to keep working on. You know, as I say, because it was aerated in a way by the by the human.
0: Is Waiting for Godot still your favorite piece of art? <laughs>
4: oh man, I, I I went. I I was in school. Uh, like the school system in Ireland is like. There's a lot of like rote learning. A lot of it is, is okay. very boring. But but uh, we had this great teacher, and he took us to Waiting for Godot when I was like was I 17 or 18? It was this famous production um, of Waiting for Godot. Uh, in, in the Gate theater. Uh, and I ended up seeing it like three times. And it's just, it's so, it's so funny. It's so, so funny. But it's, and at the same time, it's so, so bleak. It's like, just like, absolutely just down to the bone. Like, like there is, there is like, there is nothing. There is nothing. There's nothing. Except it's just at the same time, there's like these, there's this humor, you know, these jokes that keep these two, like just trumps, uh, trumps going.
0: It's a play that there's I love. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. It's yeah. a play yeah. that I love, and I totally get the connection for you as a writer and the connection, obviously, to Beckett. I'm also thinking about, too, and I hinted at this earlier, the sections for, that you gave Amelda, And, I mean, there's a little bit, obviously, of a nod to Molly Bloom and Ulysses in those moments, too. And I love seeing how you pull from that, but also Gravity's Rainbow. Dude, you sent me back to Gravity's Rainbow for the first time in, like, 20 years. And no, I didn't finish it. Okay, straight up. I didn't finish it. But it was wild to dip back into the early part of that book and suddenly feel like I was 18 again and being like, oh, right. Oh, right. Like Pynchon, if you hit Pynchon as a teenager, (laughs) your head kind of explodes. Or if you hit Beckett as a teenager, and it's not necessarily just in the classroom. Like if you understand, it's just all of these elements that you get to pull in. And that sort of bleak humor. I mean, if you think about Gravity's Rainbow. Which was a big influence on you. And you've mentioned Franzen's Corrections, Laurie Moore, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, and Faulkner's As I Lay Dying as influences, specifically on The Beasting. And that delights me to no end, because those aren't three books that you usually hear someone saying. And by the way, I was thinking about all of these as I was going. So can we just... Take a minute and talk about Pynchon and Beckett and Moore and Franzen and Faulkner because I can feel all of that sort of pulsing through the bee sting.
1: In Dublin, um, which is where I'm from, like Joyce is sort of ubiquitous. Like it's he sort of he's
4: kind of um, like the first time I, I. So my dad's a professor of English, or he was a professor of like Irish drama specifically, but. Um, we had all these, like, we have all these guys, all these books in our house in our house at home. The first time, like, Ulysses really caught my attention was we had this priest um, giving us, uh, when I was, like, 16, giving us these, this kind of this big talk. We were taking, like, on a retreat, and he has this big talk about, you know, just life, and love, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, and he said, uh, he said, like, a lot of things. This priest turned out to be, like, he turned out to be disgraced as well. He turned out to be, he was, like, very famous. He was a singing priest. He used to, like, sing on, on like, on TV shows. And, things. and he turned out to have had, like, a secret, I think he had a secret, a secret wife. He had some kind of, like, terrible secret. Uh, so, like, just a massive paper. Because one of the things he told us during the, um, during that talk was that, like, no one had ever read Ulysses. And that anyone who said they'd read Ulysses was, was lying. So I went up to my dad, you know, that night and said, you know, is, is, you just, you know, have you ever read Ulysses? And he went, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's good, book. <laughs> And I he yes, that's a priest, like, says that, you know, everyone's, you know, it, everyone's just lying about it. Not the case. Um, so I was intrigued by Ulysses then, and he gave me a, a present of Ulysses for my 18th birthday, which which I kind of dutifully read. But, like, Beckett was, Beckett was the one, like, when I was, when I was a, a teenager in particular, that I was like, oh, my God, just like you say, just like it's so elemental, you know, and also so funny. Um, I think Ulysses, you appreciate more when you're older and you kind of go, oh, why is it, like, like Bloom is like thirty-seven. It's terrifying, but um,
0: <laughs> I think but I yeah, knew so that, Beck- and I think I'd forgotten that until you just said it.
4: <laughs> like he's a he's a young man, you know. is he's the, the old geezer, and Beckett's so like spooky and haunted. I love that kind of quasi of 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 Beckett, where it's like it's it's so it's so nihilistic, and at the same time, he's just like const- constantly like. He's constantly just like just finds he's like just like a grain of something, some spark mm-hmm. of of life and vitality, just to keep things. Like there's a bit in Waiting for Godot where like um, one of the tramps, I think it's Estragon, takes off his takes off they're, they're trying to hang themselves, and he's got a rope keeping his trousers up, so he takes off the rope so he can hang himself. His, his pants fall down. <laughs> it's just like it's just perfect. So that was amazing. Like and Pension, I too went back to Gravity's Rainbow this summer and I hadn't read it for a long time. And again, like I was just like blown away by the, just like the the breadth of Pynchon's ability. Like he he writes about nature just so beautifully. It's just, it's like if the wasteland was like, like, you know, 900 pages long, it's just so beautiful. Um, And so, and so funny, Uh, it's so, and so, it's so loveless. Like it's such a loveless book. I found it very, very painful to read in that way. Like I hadn't picked up that the first time, you know. It's just like not a single functioning relationship in that book. You know, when you're when you're young, you're looking for these kind of like totems. You're looking for these totemic figures who you can kind of model yourself on. Um, not just in the in the text, but like in the way that they live as writers. And like Pynch, like obviously like and Becca too. Like these guys are pretty extreme in terms of like you know like never ever doing interviews. Like Pynch never ever being photographed. I really kind of admire that. Like I don't think you can. Well, Franson has talked about that. Franson has talked about that. Uh, is something that's not viable any longer you can't really like avoid some kind of relationship with public and i don't know that's a bad thing you know necessarily um but they're really important for you in, in that way just like modeling like uh you don't have to court publicity you don't have to look for you don't have to try and get rich you can just try and be true to yourself that's okay laurie moore um very different obviously mm. but I, I read her like around the same time as i read gravity Rainbow. And just like, well, for this book in particular, well, she writes about friendship so yeah. so so yeah. beautifully, but she uses the the second person like so brilliantly in um in self help, the first book I read by her, um, and it's just like it just so she it was this huge like gift like this, this like here's something you can do, uh and um, and just as well like she was the first, she was the, probably the first uh, woman writer that I really had like a strong connection with like her um and Donna Tart then as well. Yep. Um these like just just voices that I like important contrasts like Pynchon is like super male, you know. Beckett Beckett's interesting and Beckett's not Beckett's writes about women too, but but uh but, like Larry Moore and like uh, and Donna Tartt. um and then much later, like Eleanor Frante um again this kind of like strange reclusive figure, but um but like just writing with this incredible drive and, and passion I found really, really sort of enriching and transformative.
0: I think, too, it's hard to move around in the world and not have books that impact you. I mean, some of it doesn't age well. I found some Henry Miller on the shelf not long ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, best left to the (laughs) 18-year-olds. Like, Uh, way best left to the 18-year-olds. So, I mean, every now and again, I get a little trepidatious when I'm going back and looking at something for a show. And it's just like, "Mm, do I want to open this door? Do I really, like... I just, I love the way that I can associate certain books and writers with certain moments sort of in my life, you know, and, and carry that around as an impulse. But you've also talked about Faulkner and using that because each of the Barnes family members gets to narrate their sections. And then you do a different thing at the very end, which I want to come back to because that second person, I love that trick too. But Faulkner, Sort of yeah. giving you so, license to give everyone their own sort of turn at the mic, as it were.
4: Yeah, big time, big time. Like Fa- Faulkner is like when I was when I was um, when I was young. Um, like I said, my my dad was a professor, and he had all these he just like you know room full of incredible books, and he give me all these books. But my my mom gave me um, as I lay dying. She didn't do many recommends, but she she gave me as I lay dying, and uh, I read it when I was fifteen, and. I, that, that was the book that when I'd see the guidance counsellor in school and he'd say, what do you want to be? And uh, I'd say, I want to be a writer. I'd say, I want to be like William Faulkner. He was the guy, you know, I reread it kind of a couple of years ago. And it's like, I, I love I love his books. I love the way like he, he writes about the past. Uh, and he, he's, got, he's, he's an incredible plotter. Like his, his books, are they're really complex. Um, and, you know, the past is like informing the present. In a way that doesn't make sense until so we get to the end, uh, but As I Lay Dying is kind of a simple one as it goes, and it's like each character is telling a different story, and they've got this super gothic quest, they're, like dragging a <laughs> coffin like through the through like Mississippi to uh, bury the mother, and it's like oh, man, but each of them telling telling the story in their own, they're taking turns, yeah. As I Lay Dying and like and like the, the corrections, obviously, The yeah. like, corrections like such an amazing book, and I think like quite early on in. Quite early on in the writing of the beasting, I was going to do it as like sort of a more of a skippy Dias type thing, where there's like an omniscient voice. Right. kind of arrange the mm-hmm. kind of arranged the story. So you'd have this kind of um you'd pull back and someone would tell you about the town, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And I realized that I didn't want to do that, you know, and um and the, the corrections was like that was was like one of the, like the key models for like, you know, he's got like Chip and Gary and 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 yeah, telling her story and um, writing about a family through each of the members, and each of them, they all, again, they all sort of, they all hate it.
0: I needed the intimacy. Like Skippy, I mean, I didn't stop laughing for most of that book, but I needed the intimacy for this family's story. There are some plot things that happen that the reveals are so worth it. And... Yeah, I just, I needed the intimacy. I think I might have been a little more judgy about all of the characters if I hadn't had that intimacy, because people make a lot of decisions under duress with the most information that they have. But at the end of the beasting, and I'm not actually revealing anything, you flip voices and you go to the second person and suddenly everyone's still narrating, but it's you, it's you, it's you. And I just, I want to talk about that stylistic change for a second, because I had a moment where I didn't, I actually had to go back a couple of pages and get, wait a minute, the voice just changed because I was so into the story and so into these characters that I hadn't even really noticed the shift. But when did you know you were going to do that?
4: Well, just to your first question, like just just Mm -hmm. about the infancy, um, just the point you made there. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's really right. Like in retrospect, all of these things come, Mm -hmm. come clear. I didn't sort of consciously do that at the time. Like okay. remove that omniscient voice at the time, okay. but uh, I did want there to be a sense that the town, the town, and the townsfolk were sort of the enemy, and each of the characters are feeling like kind of monitored and judged. You know, so you don't judge them because like they're judging themselves or they're imagining the town judging them at the town. Um, and that's something the Midlands sort of setting kind of offered, which is this kind of claustrophobic sense where there's like bell Jar and they're being watched from all sides, and they can feel um, their 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 neighbors kind of you know just like. It's Just kind of like tallying all of their, their sins and misdeeds. Yeah. So it goes through. So I was like merrily wending my way through the through the book, doing it sort of one character at a time, and then I realized uh, at the end, um, I think I think in the corrections, I don't know. Remember how he does this? I think it's like, but I think it's third person, and they're all just like in the house, and there is kind of like effectively an omniscient, right? Okay. I didn't want to do that, um, and it just struck me. It was just like this. This um, again. It wasn't sort of like something I sort of like uh, thought about um, to, to to any kind of great degree. It was just like I'm, it's kind of a quixotic, experimental thing. I'm just going to try this and see what happens. And the beauty of it for me well, like, firstly, like like I said, like I just really love that you voice. I really love that second person voice, and I use it a bit in Skippy Dies, um, where Skippy is like this very kind of troubled boy. And he's one of the kind of the more like muted voices in the story because like he's he's kind of he's mostly just concealing things. Um, but his sections are narrated in this like the second person is you voice. And for him, it's because like he's 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 playing this video game. And when you're talking about video games, when my son's talking about like Legend of Zelda, he's saying, Oh, you know, you're at the Wind Temple and you've got to go down and you've got to find this like Seed of Armor, blah blah blah. And it's this weirdly, it's this really sort of like dreamlike, intimate voice. It's very mysterious, and um, I think, now that, I, wrote, now that I, I think about it, actually, that section, that last section was going to start with Cass having a dream, and I had this dream sequence, and my editor said to me, um, you don't need that dream sequence, because the whole thing, that whole last section is so dreamy, like it's so kind of, it's, so, it's, it's, it's like you're lost in but, um but I started with that dream voice, that you voice, and I just I just kept going with it. And the attraction of it for me was that I wanted the reader to go from, like, you know, cast to Dickie to PJ to Amelda, back and forth, back and forth, back through, through that like last sort of ensemble piece. And it's to feel like kind of the same voice. Like, so it's like, it's, it's different characters, but at the same time, you can see this through line, you know, they're all the same person to a certain degree or in a certain way.
0: And that's partially why I think of them as a unit, even though they yeah, all right. want to escape. It's just that last section of the book is so well done. And... The tempo changes a little bit, there's some stuff that happens, like we know we're coming to a moment and obviously I'm not going to talk about the ending here, but the ending is really organic and great. They all have this idea of what it means to be a family and a person in the world and all of these things and wow, they are just, and I don't think any of them is actually actively a bad person. But I think they're all really troubled. And the idea that they can't even see it in the person sitting next to them at the dinner table is, I mean, it's a little rough, but we get a really great novel out of this. And also the way you fold time back in. I mean, I I mentioned this sort of briefly, that we are bouncing back and forth between the present and the past. And the past feels very immediate in a way that flashbacks don't always And I feel like you're manipulating time through not just the character's voices, but also, you know, the choices you make with punctuation and or lack of punctuation. You know, there's a lot of stuff in Dickie's world, both immediate and his sort of college days where, you know, you can see the shift. You can see the shift in sort of where he's going and, and certainly his relationship with his brother. And I'm dropping all of these hints because to me, the way you just folded this story back in on itself, I could feel the immediacy. And you're going back 40 years. It was wild. It was completely wild. And I'm wondering how much of that is the rewriting and how much of that is the I'm just going to sit here until I get the story I want.
4: I was writing a lot of it during COVID, you know, and yes. I was, I was up in this, this room on CBI I'm here. Um, and, uh, I was just like, so, so happy, you know, and uh, I just come up here, you know, and it's like, I, I, you know, I like, go downstairs and get some like, banana bread and you know, mm-hmm. come back up and just like, just all of this kind of like, just badness would kind of just, of this, of this poor family, um, was kind of pour out right onto the page. Um, but it felt very, it felt very like natural and organic to me. So, but, but then when I look back on it, when I look back at the at the drafts, um, mm-hmm. like a, a lot of it did change. Uh, a lot of it did change. It's in the revisions, like that that all of like the, the the different plot strands. So I was mm-hmm. talking about you know the, the way that all these these kind of different plot strands um, are generated when when something's like when something's alive, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really it's really sort of in, in the edits that that you can kind of get them all to kind of coalesce at the end, you know, or converge at the end. That was one thing. Just just getting those getting those um, plot points to kind of hit each other. Also, just like the, the the rhythms of the writing, like the, the like a section in particular, but also like Dickie's to a certain degree,
3: mm-hmm. like
4: just just getting that just getting that that Mel's voice to to kind of to sound right, um, and to kind of uh to create that sense of immediacy. And I'm like, yeah, stuff stuff gets moved around. So 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 um, like lots of key scenes were different points of the book, you know, and and it takes a long time to kind of go, oh, actually. That's that reading really needs to come at the end, you know. That's 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 a reveal as opposed to something that should come up front. Um, without wanting to sort of like give anything away, like that, that's that's uh, there was a lot of rewriting involved.
0: Yeah. Okay, because it really this book is seamless. I mean, this is nearly seven hundred pages of very seamless storytelling, and I just I didn't want to put it down. I didn't feel like I was reading a very large. I mean, this is. This is not necessarily the most portable book I've had in my hand, but I didn't want to walk away from these characters. I was rooting for all of them. I didn't know exactly what they were going to do because sometimes with family stories, you're like, oh, okay. I see where this is going. And they kept surprising me. You kept surprising me. The language, ugh, language is so good. But I hear you're writing a kid's book.
3: Oh, well. Wow. <laughs> is this true? You're,
4: you've got, you're up to the minute, right? Um, yeah. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay. It's like, it's, it's it's really different. Like it's, yeah. it's really different. It's, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know it's, it's an experiment. So okay. okay. it's, but it's like, it's, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like how you can, it's, it, it's I'm not sure it's possible to inhabit the characters in the same way, you know, right. because you've got to sort of, you got to, you got to limit yourself, you know, you can't have so much you can't put in, you know, um, so we'll see how it
1: goes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Totally fair. But I just, I love the idea that you might follow the bee sting with kids book. <laughs> it really uh, maybe it maybe, works maybe, for me. I mean, it works for me. I just, I would read that kid's book in a second, but
4: you know. Okay. Well, maybe I'll, I'll keep going. You
0: know. All right. Let's see what happens. Yeah. All right. Paul Murray, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over the Bee Sting is out now. Fingers crossed for the booker, obviously, which you can't say, but I can. And in another conversation, we'll talk about your days as a bookseller and <laughs> a few other things. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.